Kids, you can go to kids' church, be blessed, have fun, enjoy your lessons. And if you guys have a Bible, those of you who are staying with us, open with me to Luke chapter 6. We've been making a slow march through the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to begin his first big kind of teaching in this Gospel. But before we do that, we are going to meet Jesus on the top of a mountain in verse 12. So if you have a Bible, this is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So as we meet Jesus this morning in his word, he is doing what is a normal practice for him. He is withdrawing to a quiet place for a time of communion with his heavenly Father, But what's not typical is for him to pull an all-nighter in prayer. We're discovering as we dive into this text, there is a different intensity. There's a different intentionality to his prayers this time. And why does anyone pray all night? It is not to talk to God, at God all night, but it is also to listen to what he might have to say. God has commissioned Jesus to rescue people from their bondage to evil and sin and death. He has charged him to make the authority, the reign of God, tangible on the earth, to forgive men and women their sins, to make the world new. And it's going to be this lengthy mission, and he, he knows it will require partners. He knows God's people will need fresh leadership to be his hands and feet of blessing out in the world. So Jesus is not up late because he's processing through a qualified list of candidates. He's up late because he's seeking God's voice. He's seeking divine revelation. God is going to bring about something new on the earth. He's going to establish what he calls a kingdom that's going to turn the world as it is upside down. So Jesus doesn't want to just employ the best of human wisdom. He wants to apply the upside-down logic of God's kingdom as he thinks about what he's going to do is call 12 apostles. And Jesus' long night on the mountain, it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians who were in the Greek city of Corinth. He says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. So Jesus is going to call partners. He's going to call messengers to go out and share what he's doing with the world. But they're chosen to display God's glory through their weaknesses and their limitations. They're chosen because God desires for him to know For them to know him, to know his power, to know his working in the world. 
And the greatest assets that any of us can bring to God are our availability and our willingness to trust and follow Jesus. And as we continue in this gospel, we'll realize that even that they will do imperfectly, but that is no hindrance to God working in them. Luke continues, And when day came, Jesus called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve. There's this larger crowd of disciples, of those who've committed to follow him, and he's going to pull out twelve from their ranks, whom he named apostles, his sent ones, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas, Iscariot, who became a traitor. There's not a lot of uh, name diversity in ancient Israel. As you can tell, there's lots of Judases, lots of Jameses, lots of Simons, so they need their nicknames to distinguish from one another. But he is enlisting these men to be his representatives, his eyewitnesses. They're going to go out into the world and they're going to share who Jesus is and what he's up to. And their distinguishing characteristic is that they will have been with Jesus. Luke will go on to describe these men in the book of Acts. He says, but when the rulers and elders and scribes saw the boldness of Peter and John, two of these apostles, and perceived that they were uneducated, they were common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So Jesus is embarking on this mission. He he calls 12, this new leadership for God's people. And then he sits them down to teach them. We read in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with the great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Recognize these kind of concentric circles of community that exist around Jesus. Kind of the closest, most intimate is his relationship with his father. He's up there on the mountain communicating with his father. And then there's this step out and he's got his 12 apostles, these 12 selected men that are going to be his partners in this mission. And then you take another step out and we get what Luke describes as the crowd of his disciples. These are men and women of, of different ages and different backgrounds who have come to know Jesus and have committed to trust him and follow him. Wherever he leads, they've come to to learn from him a way of life and a calling. And then there's even another circle outside of that, the, the multitudes. These are Jews and Gentiles. These are seekers and gawkers. These are the curious, the hungry, the perplexed. They haven't yet thrown their lot in with Jesus, but they're drawn to him. They're here to check out what he has to say. 
They're here to hear and to be healed. Like all of us, they seek immediate relief. Release from their brokenness, from the power of evil. But they're also desperate for new wine. They're desperate for hope. They're desperate for something to break up the crushing monotony of their lives. To discover a teaching that will bring renewal to them and to those around them. They come because they yearn to experience something that is both real and supernatural. And so these men and women, they all come. And what does Jesus offer to those who approach? He offers himself. He welcomes and validates. He allows them to touch him, to experience the overflow of his life, his holiness, his power. He makes himself relationally available. And before he makes any demands upon them, he exhibits to them God's grace wholeness and healing without discrimination. He's like this um, pulsating battery almost of God's presence and care. And all who come recognize that someone, something unique is present. And this unique presence, we discover, requires a unique response. So this is Jesus' teaching. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, verse 20, and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's himself. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is here not to address the multitudes in this moment, but to address his disciples. He wants them to know, what have you gotten yourself into? And I love that it says he lifted up his eyes upon his disciples because I can see him both seeing those who are in his immediate vicinity, but I also get the sense that he's lifting up his eyes and he's seeing the future generations of people who will come to trust him, to put their faith in him and seek to follow him. It's almost like he's locking eyes with the reader, whether that's the Reader that Luke is originally writing to these Greek and Roman city dwellers, or if it's us here in, in 21st century America. And his words begin with an announcement and a declaration Blessed, blessed, blessed are you. There's this element of congratulations. Congratulations, O oh privileged and favored one. That word blessed is the Greek word makarios. And Luke is speaking, he's writing to a Greek-speaking audience, and they have very specific connotations associated with that word. Blessed, it's, it's that sort of transcendent happiness for those whose lives are, are untouched by care, labor, 
or the fear of death. It's, it was a term most often associated with the idle rich, those who were judged to have all the raw materials required for earthly happiness. It's a word that speaks of that stratum of wealthy folks who because of their income or their assets or their inheritance, they were above the normal worries and concerns of us everyday rabble. But now Jesus is here and he's lifting up as especially fortunate those who have nothing. Those whose bank accounts drift into the red. Those whose stomachs grumble from lack of nourishment. Those who break down in tears and who see their reputation dragged through the mud. To them, Jesus says, congratulations. You have everything you need to experience true well-being and joy. It's okay to be confused there. To be perplexed, to think that Jesus is talking crazy because what he's saying doesn't make sense to our logical minds. Wait, you're claiming that true happiness resides in poverty and want and mourning and, and rejection? Are you, are you spiritualizing the hell that I'm experiencing and, and calling it good? He's not saying that. He's not saying, hey, those who want to be happy become poor. Instead, he's saying, hey, you who are poor, take heart. Congratulations for yours is the kingdom of God. What he promises is that God is breaking in to our lived experience. The reign of God is breaking into our reality and he's saying wrongs will be made right and pain will be undone and redeemed. Because of Jesus, there will be this great reversal. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Goodness and beauty, justice and truth will again take root and start to flourish in God's creation. He says all things will be made new. God has seen your plight and he will intervene to bring you consolation. The society looks at you and calls you a loser. Though you're stuck in kind of a marginal existence, leap for joy for God is for you, not against you. That's what Yuri was talking about. That's the revelation of that second mountain. God is for us. He's not against us. He's also talking to those who are struggling. He says, this gospel is not just for the future. It's for now. God's now arriving reign will bring about real change in your life. Listen to how Simon Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, tries to characterize this for a later generation. This is what he writes. To believers. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things. Do you hear that? That's past tense. 
Through Jesus, we already have open access to all of God's resources. He granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He says, do you want to thrive in this life? Do you want to live like Christ? Do you want to be able to demonstrate his love and his care and his power? Well, the resources are here right now. You can put them to work. They can be called upon and applied to your present needs and circumstances. How? Through knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. That's not knowledge just up here. It's not just intellectual understanding. It's saying you can know, you can experience Jesus. You can have this intimate, practical acquaintance with God's power, his Holy Spirit at work in your life. His life-giving, victorious, restoring spirit you can know right now. And then he goes on. By which he, Jesus, God, has granted to us his precious and very great promises. We have hope for today and even brighter expectations for the future of what he's going to do. What we can experience today is just a down payment of what God is up to, not only in our lives, but in our world. So that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Congratulations. You shall share the very life of God both now and forever. You'll be caught up in love and community, the love and community of God himself. You'll be freed from the power of evil, sin, and death, and you'll navigate the world like Christ. You'll be a blessing, but you'll be untainted or, and uncompromised by the, the unjust and sin-sick culture that we find all around us. This is great news. He says, congratulations, all you need for life and godliness, for joy, for a blessed existence that it transcends care and anxious labor and the fear of death can all be yours because of what God has done in Jesus, what he is doing in Jesus, and what he will do through Jesus. But why do the poor and the downtrodden have an advantage? Is not Jesus for all who come to him in desperation and faith? Why does he say congratulations to the poor and to the hungry? I'm reminded of Psalm 138.6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty, the prideful, he knows from afar. The psalmist isn't saying God keeps the prideful at arm's length. He says he knows them from afar. The implication is that the proud are the ones who are keeping their distance from God, not the other way around. Remember, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. 
but he also eats with any Pharisee or religious leader who's willing to dine with him, that welcomes him. He'll break bread with them. But he does imply that there is some sort of advantage of the poor in light of God's coming kingdom. So what are those advantages? We're not told, but I think I have some theories. Number one, I think the poor's desperation and their extreme vulnerability make them more willing to place their lives in the hands of God, to respond positively to his teaching, to his invitation to find healing and release. When you have nothing left to depend upon, it's easier to trust God and allow him to uphold you. I think the second thing is those who are, are kind of crushed by life, they're left destitute, they've, they've experienced their own brokenness, they have this clear sense of their need. They know that they need rescue, that they need liberation. They know that the, they need something outside of themselves to help. Jesus had just said a chapter ago, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Until we can confess our illness, we cannot be admitted into the great physician's care. I wonder, too, if the the poor at times are able to see more clearly through the false promises of earthly consolation. Yes, that extra income will help me meet a pressing need. But extra income doesn't necessarily mean satisfaction and joy. Even poor men know when you ask a rich man, how much is enough? We've heard this. Billionaires have been interviewed. How much is enough? A little bit more. Exactly. Don, I love that laugh. We were, we were wrestling through this passage in men's group this week, and one of the brothers there in that group said something I found quite interesting. He said something to the effect of, while poverty, your poverty is not glorious, it can be a servant to your ultimate joy. It can serve to make you more receptive and desperate for God's grace and care. And it can serve to make you grateful and willing to depend upon Jesus for everything. Congratulations. Good news of great joy. You can depend upon me for everything. Oh, what a message. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And this is the part of his teaching that we struggle with. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is provocative. He's uncomfortable. But before we say much, let's define woe. What is woe? Woe is an expression of deep sorrow and pity. And it often contains within it a sense of warning. 
Don't read it as a curse. He's not cursing the comfortable, the well-liked. It's closer to something like, alas, or ay, 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 or oy, ve, which actually means, oh, whoa, in Yiddish. You learned something today. It's this term of deep feeling and compassion and, and correction, not outright condemnation. It's a sentiment similar to what Luke says later in the Gospel of Luke when we, he meets this rich young ruler. Jesus, seeing that the rich young ruler had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is feeling deeply. He's, he's having compassion. But he's also speaking this word of, of warning. So why are things upside down? How is it that those who are so advantaged in society have become disadvantaged when it comes to embracing God's kingdom, what God is up to in Jesus? I appreciate how one biblical scholar puts it. He writes this, The gospel is good news to the poor and the powerless. The gospel is also good news to the rich and the mighty, but only if they follow a path of radical obedience, in which, which in turn will affect their riches and their power. Another way to put this is that a closed fist cannot receive. To embrace God's salvation, his divine provision, to accept all that you need for life and godliness, you have to first release your grip on that which you're clinging to, on that which you're trusting in to bring you consolation. Jesus says you must release it. You must give it up. You must depend on me completely. Following Jesus also means turning from all other paths. Worshiping him means abandoning all other idols that promise comfort and security and worth. And this grates at us because we are natural polytheists. We like to hedge our bets. We like to utilize all avenues to employ whatever works to secure our ends. To which Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, Jesus says, both God and money. So why is it so difficult for the well-fed, the well-established, the well-liked? Because they already experience some measure of of comfort, of consolation in this life. And it's hard to turn from what seems good, even if you know that good thing is, is fickle, even if you know it's not enough, even if you know it's false, it's fake. It's hard to turn from something that seems good to experience what is better. 
Try selling someone on the beauty of a lifelong, God-honoring, sexually fulfilling Christian marriage when they've known the, the cheap thrills of casual sex. Try convincing someone who's experienced the low-level relief that comes through that self-emptying practice of, of Buddhist meditation and telling them about something that's far greater, the filling, not the emptying, the filling of us with God's very life and power and spirit. Try to encourage someone to share the hope they have in Jesus in their workplace when they've prided themselves on being the one universally beloved in the office, the, the, the office fun guy and, and cut up. Imagine what it's like to ask someone who is accustomed to steak and fine wine and organic greens to switch to a diet of rice and beans and cabbage so that they can open up their table throughout the week to feed their neighbors in the name of Jesus. It's hard to turn from what seems good, even if we know it's not enough, to experience something better. And for the poor and the hungry and the despised, there's no loss, it's only gain. But for the confident and the comfortable, for the resourced and the respected, the gain in Christ is the same. It's the same salvation. It's the same new life that they desperately need. But they will feel the cost more. They will feel the loss of that previously known earthly consolation. We have a far deeper security trusting God with all our needs. But for those who've known the confidence that comes from having a well-funded investment account, even with the vagaries of the market, it's going to be hard if Jesus calls you this way to not have that sense of consolation. Does that make sense? They've gotten a taste. We've gotten a taste of of some sort of earthly comfort. And we know it's not enough. But it will, to trust Jesus, it will require that we leave that behind. And to that, Jesus says, woe. He expresses his pity and he offers us a word of warning. And to quote another brother from our group, he says, beware, money can displace God and steal your heart. You can put all sorts of things in that blank. Security can displace God and steal your heart. Approval, being well-liked, can displace God and steal your heart. Recognition or praise can displace God and steal your heart. Entitlement, success, they can get in the way. They can tempt us from what we truly need for something lesser. They can inhibit us from believing the gospel and God's promises, from keeping this good news that he's given us all we need for life and godliness. And we will put our trust in lesser things. And Jesus seems to imply that there are certain forms of consolation that are denied to Jesus' disciples 
or that will prove detrimental to those who seek to receive and embrace God's kingdom. We can't trust in two different things simultaneously. We need to trust in Jesus alone. Let me try to make this real and give you an example from my own life. One of the earthly consolations that seeks to steal my heart and displace God is my desire for competency. I love the feeling, the consolation that comes from being excellent at what I do. I thrill to act from a place of strength, from a place of natural gifting. It gives me pleasure. And who doesn't enjoy success and accomplishment, right? And if I'm honest, I also appreciate the recognition and the approval that comes when people realize how good I am at what I do, how I've honed my craft, how I've sharpened my mind. There's a part of me that is clinging to that consolation. And I think to me, Jesus would say, woe to you who are competent and excellent in your own eyes, for you will never know the power and the miracles of God. And what impact is this, my desire to cling to my sense of my own competency? What impact does that have on my life? If I'm trying to both trust my own abilities and trust Jesus, well, here's some of the impacts that I see. Because I cherish competency and people, including myself, knowing that I'm good at what I do, I will be tempted to only make myself available to God in situations where I feel equipped, where I feel adequately prepared and naturally gifted. I will move and minister only among those groups who I perceive like me and jive with me and understand me. I will only step onto stages where I can shine bright Because I cherish competency, I will be tempted to think that my worth and my value are rooted in my performance. I will be tempted to fear that the bottom will fall out of my life every time I fall short of excellence or every time my efforts or my talents go unrecognized or unseen. I will be tempted to allow every decision, the very direction of my life, to be determined by this priority. The consolation of feeling like I'm good at what I'm doing. That will become my Lord and will, I will become its servant. And Jesus says, Woe to you who are competent and excellent in your own eyes, for you will never know the power or miracles of God. In my life, I was really, really good at academics. That was where I felt competent. That is where from junior high through grad school, I got nothing but A's. I felt like this was something that I could thrive. But I felt at one point the Lord was calling me into ministry, something that I knew I was not nearly as good at. And he says, trust me, you have to lay aside that earthly consolation and experience me and know that I have all that you need for life and for godliness. And if I wouldn't have trusted him and taken that plunge, 
I wouldn't have seen as a campus missionary hundreds of students who were far from God find a home in him. I wouldn't have seen families built up and rescued and transformed by the power of God's work in them as I worked in local churches. I wouldn't have been here all because I would want to be clinging to that consolation that says, oh, I feel good about me because of what I've done. And I would start to begin, I realized I was beginning to reject the promises that God had. God says, this is the word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's not your ability. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, boast all the more gladly in your weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Jesus says, woe, beware, I pity you, because know this thing, this lesser thing is trying to steal your heart and it is trying to keep you from what you really need, which is me. I am a deeper and richer consolation than anything else. So I want you guys, I have a homework assignment for you this week. We're not doing it now. But you've been handed either a yellow or a blue thing. I want you to do an actual inventory. Because the woes that Jesus says, they're written to us. What earthly consolation is your heart tempted to cling to instead of Jesus? And then do the work. Sit there if you're bold enough and try to imagine what his word of woe would be to you. What impact does you clinging to that thing have on your life? Which promises of God are you rejecting by doing so? And how is Jesus in his consolation better than that idol? Let's take the time this week to look to Jesus, but also to look inside and heed his warning of what we're trusting more than him. So I'm going to invite the worship team forward to close us in song. But know that he loves us and his woes are not condemnation. They're the fear of a loving father that thinks that we might trust in something that is insufficient and unstable and destructive instead of his grace. So let us bask in how much he loves us and let us trust him. Amen.